Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A media.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's edition of Conversations. Z, we are continuing some of our discussion from last week. And last week, we had this very interesting talk about the brain and fluid thinking and how a lot of the channels in the brain, if we've got too much anxiety, uh, too much, almost like a wire and it's carrying too much electricity, it burns out. And then it leads to things like dementia, Alzheimer's. Uh, So we don't want to be too stuck in our thinking. We want to be able to take different approaches, different pathways. And this week, we were batting around ideas for a topic. You came up with a great idea, uh, the slow drip of death, (laughs) which I really liked. Caitlin, who's the executive producer on our podcast, dissed that idea. So we're going to call this something else. But in the meantime, we'll refer to this as the slow drip of death. And the slow drip of death is a way of understanding the phenomenon that we were talking about last week, where we get stuck in the same habits, the same way of thinking. And the idea is that we're walking around with this enormous amount of anxiety. So we're anxious all the time. We're in a constant state of urgency. We're living out problems and fantasies in our minds. So we've got stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the world. Maybe we're victims. Maybe things never go our way. Maybe we're struggling to be understood. And that causes this constant churn in the mind. Uh, Then you've got people, and Z, you and I know some of these people, where they can't sit still. We were talking about mania today, where you see people, and they're just jumping around constantly. They can't even finish one thought before going on to the next thought. They ask a question, they can't even wait for the response, and then they're on to the next question. It's just go, 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 and it's not clear what the end point is. It's not clear why you're doing that, why are you on that path, what is the benefit, is it sustainable, These aren't questions that we ask because anxiety has become so normalized that this is just how we roll. You know, this is what we do. Uh, We wake up in the morning and we run ourselves ragged until we come home at night. Then you want to sleep. You can't even sleep because you can't shut the mind off and you've got maybe stimulation from the text that you're uh, responding to uh, from whatever social media you're looking at. So it's just this constant go, go, go. There's never any time to slow down. And we call this the slow drip of death because in the moment, it's not obvious what the damage is. In the moment, it's not even obvious that this is a phenomenon because we look around and it's kind of like, okay, I'm in the hustle. I'm doing the same thing as everyone else. I'm just out there. I'm that squirrel trying to uh, get a nut, trying to take care of my family, trying to put some money in the bank, trying to get to the next level, uh, get that promotion, do my hustle, do my grind. Yeah, I'm out all the time, but isn't that what life is about? I got to be out at the restaurants, at the bars. I got to be at different parties. And I've seen this. uh, I think it's gotten worse over the years. But I remember when I first came to New York uh, 20 years ago, I met people like this. They couldn't be alone for a single night. So they were scheduled to the point where every single free moment that they had, whether it was a breakfast, a lunch, or a dinner, it was accounted for. They always had to be with someone. And I always imagined these people... And just the terror, you know, even if it's not, Z, a a terror that is very visible, maybe it's a subconscious terror, but how afraid do you have to be of your own thoughts, of your own company, of what's going to happen if you have to deal with the demons in your mind, if you have to wrestle with all your insecurities, 
if you're terrified of that, then yeah, you're constantly on the move because you never want to give yourself a second alone. So this phenomena that we have, this slow drip of death, I think part of it comes from habit. Part of it is that this has become normalized. And as we talk about when something becomes extremely normalized, you don't even know it exists because you don't have a model for something else. You don't know what that is. Uh, this is your entire reality. And then part of it might be just laden insecurities that we have, uh, different fears that we have, uh, feelings of emptiness that we've never really addressed. Uh, maybe the two interact. So if we're on the go all the time, we don't have that downtime. We don't have a, t a excuse me, a chance to reflect. We don't have a chance to bring out that creative fire. We also, unfortunately, don't have a chance to connect with other people. And uh, this is also very interesting to me, Z, because I think intimacy is declining across the board, whether you're talking about intimate relationships or friendships, because people are just stuck in their own goddamn mind. Uh, so if I'm all wrapped up in my text chain and my sense of, oh, I got to be somewhere else, I got to do something else, I got to look for something better, then I'm not present. There's no way that I can relate to someone else. And the other aspect of the anxiety is it becomes a constant threat. So we always feel like we're under attack. And if you're under attack, you're going to shut down. You're going to try and barricade yourself from the rest of the world. And so that's also not conducive to having relationships and opening yourself up to someone else. So for all of these reasons, we can get into this anxious state, slip into it perhaps without realizing it. It seems normal. It doesn't seem like anything is that off. Yeah, we're tired at night, but we can pop some sleeping medication. We can drink a few glasses of wine until we fall asleep, even though we're not sleeping that well. And we don't think about it. But the reason it's a slow drip of death, and this is what we were talking about earlier, Z, over time this accumulates. You know, it's like that Chinese water torture. Someone's got a little faucet dripping on your forehead. And for a while, you're like, what is this? This is just a joke. You know, this isn't a big deal. But it keeps on coming and coming and coming, and it's relentless. And eventually, it just burns a hole in your brain. Uh, the slow drip of death, it's like a, a steady erosion, and it shuts down parts of your brain. It shuts down these pathways that we've been talking about. It leads to long-term health problems. This is particularly problematic, as we talked about last week, for people who are younger, because we're seeing Parkinson's, we're seeing Alzheimer's at earlier and earlier ages, uh, partially because of anxiety, partially because of drugs, partially because people aren't sleeping and they're not being able to unwind. So I think having an awareness of this tendency that we have and this slow but steady impact on our minds and our general health is critical. And then, of course, Z, as we always do, we need to talk about strategies and how can we get out of this and really to close the circle, how can we get back to that more fluid state of thinking that we were talking about last week? And so why don't you kick us off? I mean, I don't know if you've got a better idea as we've been talking uh, for a title than the slow drip of death, but uh, talk through the phenomenon with us. You framed it really well, Vin. I think for all of our opt-outs, the more uh, elements of knowledge we have, they become tools of living so we can live a better life. Um, I think about it a lot as I see uh, my peers aging and the ones who age real healthy and the ones that don't. I think about younger and younger people that seem older now. They seem a lot older than I remember young people being. They seem more burdened, more worried, and generally less healthy. And I thought about the idea of the slow drip of death when someone was describing to me how they got into clean water. And they said they, they, when they were younger, they lived in a home 
that for many, many years, uh, the family owned a home. And in that home, there was a tub that the water had eroded um, a certain part of the tub. And there was a, a discoloration and a groove worn by the dripping water. And they thought if that water is that toxic, that deadly, where it can, it can change the color and dissolve porcelain, what is it doing to the families that have been drinking that water for years? And all of the people in that family had some form of cancer, some uh, form of chronic disease, or some disease that would, was, was life-altering. And it was that drip, a constant drip that was always there. They had covered it with towels. They did all kinds of things to silence the drip. But for whatever reason, they had never been able to repair or nobody thought it was a big enough deal to repair. I don't know. But I think about that. And now that we've done this research on stress, so they talk, they, they talk about in the research how the two things that are most stressful for human beings is a sense of loss of control and a change of, of, of their environment or lack of consistency in their environment. And that could be your workspace. Any People don't like to move around uh, as an animal. So those are things that cause the most damaging stress. The healthy stress, of course, are exercising, challenging yourself a little bit with your body, but not damaging yourself. Intellectual back and forth that helps you grow your mind, uh, hobbies and interests that you're passionate about. Those are good stresses, what's known as the eustress, right? And so the stress that is the slow dip, uh, drip of death are the ones that you don't realize this is not right. We need a good night's sleep. And before we have a good night's sleep, there has to typically be a resolution of the day, right? The day is over. I'm not carrying things of yesterday into tomorrow, right? So you can't really rest if you're carrying yesterday or today into tomorrow. So there's anxiety. But we found that to be normal. That's one of the drips of death, right? Also, at an early age in your life, if you have been indoctrinated, be it through academics or religion or family culture, and you don't know how to navigate adversity or changes, or less so the brain doesn't like inconsistency. So you've been doing things a certain way, that routine breaks, and not only does it cause you some dismay, but it actually makes you feel bad. Uh, it, it stops you from moving forward. There's no way to sort it out. It's okay if that, that thing, something changes in front of you, and you go, oh man, things are different, and then you work away around it. Caitlin was just telling us how her mom taught her when she was driving, how to get home many different ways. So what that does in an early age, it trains your brain as a living organism on how to resolve things through different paths, how to take the long way home, how to use different streets. So we all want to have the ability to take the long way home in situations so that we're not in a long traffic jam of, of neurosynoptic messages that are just jammed up, that causes this bundling of the brain, that causes these beta amyloid and, and demyelinization of the brain, which gives you these diseases. So you may get these diseases from drug use, injury, uh, trauma of all kind, but if your brain, that organism knows how to work around that congestion, 
you're going to be okay, even if it has damaged areas. So <clears throat> why this is important is that more and more we're seeing that we have all collectively, most of us, have normalized high levels of the toxic dripping stress. Mania is now normal. As we talked about earlier, Ben, mania is normal. People going, going, going with no sense of ever ending. So there's no more a, a visceral loop, a completed visceral loop. So you're going from one thing to the other, 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 to the other. So just saying that makes me anxious. Next thing, next thing, what's next, what's next? So be it a joyful thing. Okay, we got this birthday party we're going to go to this weekend. We're going to go do this birthday. It's going to be great, great, great. Then we're going to leave there. Then we're going to go to this opening house. Then we're going to, you've seen that happen. Then we're going to go get a little, we're going to go, go, go. Then we're going to go to the amusement park. Then we're going to, then we're going to go to a funeral. And then we got, it can't, this is, you're, go, you're riding one high after another until you've normalized that behavior, which isn't, there was never a completion. There was never a shutdown. Uh, so many times people will go on vacation and come back and say, I really need a rest. One should not go on vacation and need a rest. Something was wrong with that vacation. They, they book too many activities. I've seen that. People go on vacation and they book so many activities that they're exhausted. And when they get home, they need some rest, but they can't because they're off vacation. So this is the slow drip of death, constantly going. It, now it's toxic. It's, it's so unhealthy. You see that it's damaging your brain. It's actually damaging your brain. Then you get around enough people who are brain damaged, and we start to see that behavior as regular behavior. This is okay behavior when it's absolutely not okay behavior. So we don't know what calm is, how to be calm, the value of calm. We understand the value of meditation, yet too often people are rushing to meditation. Then they say, how long would it take for me to meditate? How long would it take to meditate? And meditation is not based on the common space-time continuum. It's not based on that. Meditation is based on that we're mediating. We're in the middle. However long that mediation goes, and when you arrive at that place, it's all good, right? So there are many ways of thinking about our brain, and I like to talk about the brain because our reality is in our brain. The hypothalamus is producing every chemical and every drug you've ever smoked, shot, snorted. The hypothalamus creates that in, in fine balances that that was what our reality is. When you throw that out of sync, when you throw that reality out of sync, then you're constantly trying to readjust to fit into whatever social model we're living in. You, got, you follow what I'm saying? You're, you're, you're tweaking the camera to fit what your body feels. You're trying to go from an altered reality to the now. And that becomes, the more and more you're trying to adjust that, the harder and harder it gets. So that's one of the reasons it's really important. I, th I thought about something as I'm thinking about the brain and what we learn from animals and creatures in our lives. We can learn a lot from pets, right? A lot, a lot of things. Not cats, but any other kind of pet you can learn from. And animals, 
if you have a certain type of animal that's hyper alert, right? You walk, you try to walk in the house, the animal jumps up to see what's going on. But if you have that pet for a long time, it doesn't react to you anymore. You're no longer a potential threat in the environment, right? Because the animal knows it needs to rest. It needs a visceral loop. It needs to be quiet. It needs calm and downtime. It doesn't need to worry if it's going to be hunted, right? And it realizes that on just a really organic level. So we as humans can learn that behavior. When you come home, are you getting text, emails about the next day or things you need to do all hours of the night? You say something. That's not cool, right? Because that's just like you disturbing your cat's rest. And over a period of time, it takes you out of a healthy anabolic cycle. You don't go into a good rest cycle because once you do that enough, you're waiting for the next one. Is that right? You're anticipating the next threat, the next alert. So that's why we do ourselves a favor by turning off the alerts late at night and leaving only an emergency channel. So any call coming in, like it used to be, was a crisis. Anybody calling after 10 o'clock, it was a crisis, right? Now it's just the normal thing. Random texts and alerts coming in at all times of the day or night. Then you think you're resting through it, but you're really not because that primitive animal part of you is looking for an emergency. And that's, again, destroying our brain, which is us. You also see that maybe a friend or a spouse sends you dreadful news or urgent news or something that needs to be taken care of right before you go to bed. Right before I go to bed, right before I'm going into that cycle of introducing myself to the sleepy dream world, somebody decides to tell me, okay, you know you got to pay the gas bill in the morning. Uh, did you get that parking ticket? Did you block whatever it is, right? And now that's on your mind. So <clears throat> we've just brought today into tomorrow. So there's, you never really rested. You never had a boundary in the day. And then if you observe the trauma that goes on, a lot of this trauma starts at early, early years. It's good for kids to have a shutdown time. It's good for young people. Not just the little babies and the little kids and the toddlers, but even for younger people in their 20s to have a shutdown, a period at the end of the sentence, a delineation. And I'll tell you, one of the things, you, again, you learn from animals is a funny thing is how trauma stays with you and how that can shape your reality. So I got a dear friend, Planet Janet. We've talked about her somewhere. She used to have these mastiffs, right? And when she brought these mastiffs home, they, had, they were tiny puppies like any other puppy, right? They're little bitty puppies, but they have huge feet. That's how you know it's a mastiff. That's what I learned from that. So I had never seen that before. I thought they were deformed because they can't walk. Their feet are so big when they're a puppy. Have you ever seen a puppy mastiff? They have like full-grown mastiff feet. And it's the funniest thing. It looks like a cartoon. So when her mastiffs were little, they would see me and for whatever reason, they were scared of me, right? They were scared of me. So they would run and hide under the bed, right? They would run under Planet Janet's bed and I would lift up the bed and they would be like in terror. And then I would get them back out from under the bed. And then they would, they would, uh, they would breathing hard. And, <laughs> and I would cuddle them and tickle them or whatever. 
Fast forward a few years, now these dogs weigh, what, 200 plus pounds? And I would come around and they would try to get under the bed. But they're 200 pound dogs trying to get under the bed, so they would lift the bed up. And you obviously there are two, two 200 pound uh, bears lifting up a bed thinking they're hiding from me. It was the funniest thing. So can you picture that? These huge dogs still saw me as whatever they saw me as, and then they would relax, and they, then I could pet them. We went through a ritual all the time. But the funniest thing in the world to see these 200-pound dogs lifting up a bed, trying to hide under it. So when they squeezed under the bed, it would just lift up in the air. Isn't that what they do when they train elephants from being babies? Mm. Like, they put the chains on them or ropes, and they're capable as adults of breaking those, but... They still have the yeah, the trauma, the trauma, just like people. And that's my point and what the, the scientists are saying about early trauma, early brain development. At an early age, you want to help your brain navigate like your mother taught you how to navigate and take the long way home to find options, right? Because just like those dogs had a certain image of me in their head, like I told you about Craig Howard, had an image of me in his head, even though he's six foot five. 300 pounds, he still calls me Big Z, okay? On the downside of that are behaviors. If we have a singular path to get home, and that's all we know, we don't have the tools, that organism of the brain doesn't have the tools to navigate around it, you will find yourself frustrated, angry, bitter, congested, right? And with no way to resolve that anger loop. And now you're getting more angry. The fight or flight is turned up to high volume. And you're, you're going to burn out your brain. You'll find yourself uh, losing cognitive clarity and acuity at a very early age. And that's why this is a good thing to learn. Now, let's say you didn't learn how to take the long way home as a child. As an adult, you can develop hobbies and interests that are challenging you enough to help change your ways. They're not as good as if you did it when you were younger, <coughs> but they are beneficial no matter when you start. So what we all are trying to do is change our narrative on situations so that we can reduce that drip of death, that, that damage we're doing to ourselves. I found that, I found that, I hope that other people found it. Let's say you're in some situation that brings you despair and you don't see a way out, and you sit with it long enough, it goes from despair to tolerable. It goes from tolerable to normal. But it's still the same thing. So you haven't really resolved it. So what we want to do is find another way around. Not only am I going to look at it different, I'm going to take ownership of myself so that I can make changes in me. We can't change other things, other people, but you can make changes in you. If you, as I say, what's dear to me, if you have family members that have egregious behavior that really grate at you, that, that hurt you, because on only a way a family member can, it requires withdrawal. But if you haven't taught yourself how to withdraw, you keep pushing forward and it makes it worse and worse and worse. But at some point, you stop. Maybe back up, take a right or left turn, 
and get around them. And then train yourself to do that. And you'll find yourself able to do it in many situations. We all have different temperaments to stress. People oftentimes think when they're in manic, depressive episodes that they're alive because they've, they've done it for so long that they're numb. So when they hit those difficult things in life, they feel alive. I was, as I said, as speaking with uh, my dear mentor, Kumasi, there are certain people you can't help, as he was explaining, that there are people who thrive on suffering. They thrive on it. What do I mean by that type of thriving is they're constantly getting an AED to their heart. They're getting their heart shocked to beat again. So you see when they have to shock a person's heart to get it started. If you use that device on a person whose heart is beating, it will stop. Isn't that interesting? The same thing that will revive a person will kill a person. But it's not sustainable. So what we work on is that ability to observe and see that this is not healthy nor sustainable. I want, to do, I want to not only get away from the slow drip of death, but stop that drip. Do what it takes to repair that so, so it doesn't corrode me. It doesn't undermine me. It doesn't deny me of my opportunity to live a healthy life and the ability to not burden my loved ones when I'm unable to take care of myself. When you're talking, Z, you said so many interesting things. There are a couple of points I want to touch on. One is the idea of karma, because you're talking about the slow drip of death, and it brings to mind the idea of karma, the cause and effect. Every action has a reaction. And not only that, but our life plays out oftentimes in an infinite chain of cause and effect without even our our knowledge. I mean, it's almost like we're in these automatic habits. And I wrote a piece on this once. I think it was called Pinball. And the idea was that we just bounce around like pinballs. And we go from one thing to another. And maybe we hit an obstacle and we go in a different direction. But there's no conscious thought. There's no constant planning. Uh, there's only physics involved taking us from one place to another to another. And when we think, think about the anxiety in our minds and what drives us through life, I feel like a lot of it is the same thing. It's just a continual playing out of cause and effect without a higher intelligence, without an ability to step back and say, this is where I want to go, or this path makes sense to me, or I've been doing something for a certain amount of time, and now it's time to make a change. Uh, it's more that we're, we're blind. You know, we wake up and maybe there's something, let's say we, we go to bed and we've got everything spinning around in the mind. And because everything's spinning around in the mind, you can't sleep. So you wake up and you're in a bad mood and you're tired. And because you're in a bad mood and you're tired, you get into an argument with your loved ones, and then that weighs on you. And then you carry that into work, and you go into work, and you're not focused, so you mess something up at work. And then you worry about that all day, and you're kicking yourself, and you're in this cycle of negativity. And then you come back, and you get into more drama and more confrontation. And then maybe you feel bad about all of that, so you eat more than you should, or you drink more than you should. Or you just hang out and you distract yourself with meaningless entertainment, which fuels the cycle of anxiety until you're so exhausted and burnt out that you go through it again. Uh, you again go to bed. You again can't sleep properly. And there's no ability to step away from this. So, Z, when you're talking about a more intelligent solution, 
that we have to be able to break these habits. Uh, we have to be able to look at what we're doing and say, is this a direction I want to proceed in or not? We need that ability to step back from ourselves, to somehow get out of this endless chain of cause and effect. And that brings me to another point that you made, which I think is very important. It's this idea of closure. So what is going to give us that time to reflect and to be able to step back from ourselves? It's that sense that one thing is done, that we've got a series of chapters in the day or chapters in our lives, and there are certain times and seasons for particular things. So we do things for a certain amount of time. At that point, we put it away. It's done. In fact, you were talking to my wife about this. Uh, she was getting into her anxious mode. She was worried about something that happened at work. She couldn't get it out of her head. And your advice to her was, look, you got to put that away. It's done. There's nothing more to think about. So we have to be able to train ourselves to get that closure. And part of it is a mental discipline. Part of it is routine. You know, you think about something like sleep. That's why it's so important to put devices away, to go to bed at the same time, to have that ritual where you're winding down, where to your point, you're ending the day. It's done. Now that it's done, you're clear. You can rest. You can recharge. You can get up. When you're up, now you've suddenly got that clarity. Uh, you're not driven by urgency or carryover anxiety or a sense that I'm behind and I've got to do something. You've got a clear space, a clear frame of mind, and you can go and make intelligent decisions. And if you do that, I think a lot of interesting things happen. So one, we get out of this mode of anxiety and we get out of this drip of death. Two, it opens up such a wider set of possibilities for how we live, uh, for the opportunities that we recognize the decisions we make, the directions that our life takes. We don't have to play by the same rules as everyone else. Uh, this is where the opt-out idea becomes so powerful. We can go in a different direction. And it's not that we're trying to be contrarian. Maybe sometimes we do the same things as everyone else. Maybe sometimes we don't. Maybe sometimes we do it to a point and then we shift course. But we're the stewards. You know, We're the ones who are in charge. And instead of randomly bouncing around, we're giving direction to that pinball as we go through life. And we might see things that other people don't. Uh, we might be able to create things and get inspiration that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. Uh, we might make more intelligent decisions about relationships. Uh, we might find an opportunity to start a new business that we haven't seen or a creative solution to some problem that's been plaguing us. So it's kind of like a whole world opens up when we take off the blinders. And in fact, it's interesting. Uh, as I think about the blinders, I think about my life. And my life, in a sense, for a while was just a linear progression. And it was kind of Z, like, I looked at what everyone else was doing, and I wasn't even thinking about this consciously. I'm more attributing uh, this idea in retrospect, because at the time, I didn't feel this way. But when I look back, it was, let's go from one thing to the next to the next. So let's go from high school to college. Let's go from there to a job at a consulting firm. Let's go from there to Wall Street. Let's keep on climbing up that ladder without ever thinking about, is this something that is serving me? And Part of me must have had a latent sense that it wasn't, or at least it was incomplete. You know, maybe it served part of my needs, but it just this endless life on a treadmill by itself wasn't going to do me any good. I mean, it was horrifying. Uh, and it, I got to a point where I was feeling sufficient pain and, and depression and just felt like I was suffocating. And so then that gave me the energy to be able to step back. But maybe we don't have to get to that point. And maybe we can just train ourselves to have a little more discipline to take those blinders off. And that's where I want your input, Z. So I've talked a lot about this karma, this cause and effect, this momentum that we get swept up in, uh, the accumulated weight of habit, the ideas that we've been programmed with, and we've got those blinders on. 
uh, talk to us about maybe the mental habits that we need to cultivate or maybe the routines we need to cultivate so we can step back and just look at things a little more fluidly. Then that's, you made a bunch of good points. And as I was trying to note them in my mind and respond in kind, I say to, when you talk about karma, remember there's no good or bad karma. Karma is a law of consequence and actions, right? It deals with the, that, that kind of quantum flow of life. There's always causality. <clears throat> and what came to mind is I started thinking about what would be the rules or instructions to dealing with us avoiding and managing that slow drip of death. <clears throat> you talk about boundaries. We've talked about that before, but finishing your day and completing your day. So that's how you know my day was complete. And when you do that, it goes back to what we always talk about is devotion, right? Reverence, devotion. Devotion to what and who? Be glad you're alive and be glad that the people you're around you are alive and be glad that you had those that are no longer here and learn a lesson from the grief of that loss. When you go to work, be complete at work and leave work at work. Work isn't you. I was thinking about when we were in these meetings and people uh, immediately introduced themselves by what school they went to and where they worked. But you know nothing else about them. What were your hobbies, interests? What did you enjoy? What made you laugh or cry? I, I want to know your humanity so I can trust you. So they've taken that off the table. Maybe they describe some aspect of the curriculum vitae and, and, and some position they held. But are you Jack the Ripper? Are you the hatchet murderer of Manhattan? I, I don't know. Because I want to I trust you. Because when we trust people, like Caitlin's cat, it doesn't even get up when you come home. Because you're no threat. You're a place of comfort a place of warmth, a place of trust. So for those who are opting out, let's get back to that. Let's get back to sharing our heart with people because it reduces stress. Be discriminating about the people you share your time with. Are they giving you energy back or are they just there to take energy? And that's all people, even people you have familiar ties to, even blood relatives. If you have siblings, brothers or sisters that you know are crazy, it doesn't belittle you by saying, you know what, my brother's crazy or my sister's crazy. Though we are kin, we are not alike. We were just put together by this whim of fate in a moment of lust and we ended up being in the same family. But nobody owes anybody anything. That's another thing, Vin. When you feel that people owe you, you, it develops resentment. Or when you feel you're entitled to something, that starts resentment. Resentment is stress. Too much stress, negative stress. Nobody owes you anything. They don't owe you courtesy. They don't owe you acknowledgement, any of that. If we are polite and courteous with one another, that is the reward to ourselves. That is not something that must be bestowed upon other people. If we have enough of it, then we have a kind society. 
or we have a kind social environment. But it's not on us. It's on, on our soul to do what's best for us in that moment. That doesn't mean selfish and all that sort of thing. It means what kind of world do I want to be in? The other day, uh, my wife went and picked up the little one at school and the teacher wasn't there and one of the helpers wasn't there and they just came off a strike and he was just by himself. And it was very traumatic. And so I started, we started thinking, okay, we're gonna have to pull him out of the school. This is rough. And I went to the teacher and I said, it was a bad day. Nobody was watching the kids. And he apologized over and over and over and explaining that that's what the strike was about, to get more help, get more aid. And I said, well, we have to resolve this. This can't happen again. He says, I, I will make it sure. After I call in sick, I'll call you next to not bring your child in. I said, thank you. Thank you for that. Because that created a resentment. I had a resentment for him. I had a burning in my gut. Then it resolved right away with a conversation. But the ability to talk to him the way we spoke started the first day my child went to that school. And I got to know him and got to talk to him and got to be in a friendly space where we weren't in a place where there was a stranger dealing with our child. So you want to look at really different ways of mitigating stress and even ways of understanding the genesis of stress so that you don't rile it up. Most people are having marital problems and relationship problems, as you can see in any type of Instagram, Facebook, anything you read or talking to people. As you know, Vin, we have friends that are going through horrific things, and everybody is a block away from death and a block away from life. It's, we're right there. We're not far away from joy or disaster. So don't think that everything is good without maintenance. There are certain signs that will give you warnings of disasters to come. Taking a person for granted, be it a brother, a sister, a spouse, a friend. Check in with the people you love. I've said that before. That reduces stress. It takes a burden off your chest. It adds uh, brightness to their day. Nurture that relationship. If you have a friend, that friendship is built on understanding, trust, and counting. Just while we were doing this podcast, <clears throat> my dear friend who's like a brother to me, Phil Wong, sometimes he just calls in and says this, just checking in, man. You know how good it feels to just know somebody far away thought about you. And if you're going through stress, if you feel isolated, if you feel your heart is barren and you're just in the middle of everything and just hearing the word reduces stress. So what if you share the word? That helps. Relationship troubles are much more simple than people think. People make them complex. I look at situations where people get married with so much joy and all that. And they have an old saying. They said a man marries a woman hoping she'll never change. A woman marries a man hoping he'll change. That's the beginning of conflict. What if you connect with people, humble yourself and say, I'm so glad that you chose me because I'm not the best person in the world. I'm the best I can be. So maybe if you could connect to me that way, 
that would be a beautiful thing. And I'm going to acknowledge that in daily gratitude because there will be a day if you do everything right that one of you will bury the other. One of you will see the other off until yesterday. And at that time, you just want to have tears of joy that we had a hell of a run, baby. But you need to start that now. Stress does not allow that. Stress is tension built on tension. And when that tension relieves itself, something explodes, right? Um, sharing the best of yourself with people and the whole of yourself, which might not be the best, but doing it in a compassionate way. That reduces stress. Those are the remedies to the slow drip of death. The cause of it is normalization of that that is toxic. You follow me, Vin? Yeah, Z, I think that's a good way of putting it, the normalization of things that are toxic, because it's a reminder how easy it is to fall into these patterns. And it kind of reminds me of how I think about evil. Uh, <laughs> shifting topics a little bit, but I think it's a good analogy. You think about evil or the horrible things that go on in the world, and oftentimes it's just incredibly banal. You know, it's not like there's some mastermind who's saying, how can I inflict maximum pain on humanity? It's people just going along in systems and processes and habits that collectively inflict harm on other people on the planet, but they're not necessarily out there trying to do it. Uh, they're just part of a system and a set of routines that has that effect. And I think it becomes bad precisely because it's so common. It's so ordinary. You know, if it were extraordinary, if we're like, oh my God, this person is a psychopath and they're destroying humanity, it would be easy and you could deal with the problem. But if it's common, if it's routine, if it's part of people's everyday experience, uh, if it's, this is just what we do, you know, you think at a social level uh, and you think about certain misguided ideas, whether it's going and trying to educate people in foreign countries under the guise of, oh, they're savages and we're trying to help them, we're trying to bring them civilization. And that can be very destructive, but I'm sure you have a lot of people who historically have been involved in that who thought that they were doing a good thing. Uh, you've seen the same thing today in geopolitical conflict. We're following along narratives that I don't think serve humanity, but they're familiar narratives and they sound right and they've got a good ring to them. And so we promote conflict. And you see the same thing as we're talking about at the individual level, where you just go along with things and habits because that's what you've done in the past. It's what everyone else has done, uh, what everyone around you is doing. Uh, so that toxicity becomes so normal, it becomes invisible. It just fades into the background. Uh, so as a reminder, I think it's a reminder of vigilance that we just need to constantly be paying attention. And we have to constantly check in with ourselves, make sure that we're on the right track, uh, diagnose ourselves, understand where we're lacking, you know, what be able to observe and say, okay, what am I suffering from? Am I exhausted? Am I anxious? Am I feeling disconnected from other people? If so, what is the remedy? And if this is the remedy, how do I change my habits and my routines to affect that? So I think that vigilance is very important, Z. And one other thing that I want to mention, which we talked a little bit about offline, <laughs> you know, it's funny because uh, you, you'd mentioned how relationship problems are not as complicated as people think. I think the same holds true for a lot of problems that we have. 
but we've got like this perverse tendency to do things that harm us because we can't change our thinking because the cost of changing our thinking and our narratives and our beliefs around ourselves is so high that we're not willing to do it. Uh, so for example, there's a lot of needless drama that I see at work. It's it just conflict. It's stupid. It's a waste of time, but it's based on ideas such as we're the best team we're doing all the work. No one else is doing anything else. Uh, so let's beat down other people. Let's beat them into submission. Um, let's go along with these initiatives that no one else is going to care about because we know what's right and they don't. Uh, so that's an example of a pattern that people fall into that creates a lot of drama and conflict, which is just anxiety. It's wasted energy. But there's some value, presumably at a personal level, to holding on to that. Uh, or if you think, for example, in a relationship that you're the savior, you've got to save this other person. And yeah, they're, they're beating me, they're drunk, they're not bringing in any money. Uh, they're basically sucking out my life, but I'm here on this earth to help them. And I see that they're really good inside and I can, I can help turn them around. Uh, I can help make them into something greater than they otherwise would be. And that's my purpose on this earth. And that sense of purpose maybe compensates for something else, or maybe it gives us a certain sense of satisfaction. Uh, so see, I, I want to talk about that for a minute or get your perspective on it, because I feel like that's the impediment a lot of times to dropping these behaviors that cause that slow drip of death. It's false programming. It's false stories that we've told ourselves. But for some reason, we're holding on to these beliefs. So what do we do about that? Like, how do we start understanding what these beliefs are and then let them go without traumatizing ourselves? Because if our entire identity is based on a set of beliefs, even if those beliefs are false, we start letting them go. It, it can be scary. You know, we can feel like we're just adrift or we're going to be swallowed up. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it goes back then, this is an easy one, it goes back to the studies of Sri Aurobindo on ego, which everybody would benefit from studying Sri Aurobindo's books on ego. The ego is a beast, as we said, just the very mentioning of the ego causes it to rear itself up and reinforce itself a thousandfold. And a lot of times people get in situations that are untenable and they stay in them because of ego or the sense that they've invested so much in it um, I, I need to put more in it uh, from an ego point of view because I, I got to make it work. And then you get distorted, which creates another type of toxic uh, stew of, 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 of madness in your head. Um, acceptance of people as they are and also know when you need to get off the road with them. That's one of the best things we can all do. But always look at your ego. Go right back to the ego and say, what the hell am I doing? Um, you think about how pathetic it looks when an old boxer believes himself to be able to do it, what he did when he was 20 or something years old. Now he's 50 and he I still got it. No, what you got is 50 years. What you got is 30 more years than you had before. Different interests, different objectives, a different drive in life. Uh, a, an old rich boxer will never win a boxing match against a young hungry boxer. He's had too much food in his stomach. He's had too much comfort in his head. He's learned the difference uh, in plush sheets and bargain sheets. So he can never, there's nothing to fight for anymore. His fight is over. But the ego will tell him that that was his glory. That was your greatness. 
is uh, all the uh, the masturbations of the ego. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the only way to put it. So we want to arrest our ego so that we can know when to get off a ship, when to get, this is my drop-off point. And that will reduce our stress quite a bit. Accepting people, again, as they are and accepting your limits to affect them. Not everybody that you're trying to help needs your help. Not every situation you're trying to control do you need to control it. Sometimes it's yourself you need to control. The situation is as it is. So very few people do you, do, will the ego point out and say, oh, they need my help. And as a collective society, we see this, this egocentrism is a disease of the, the society, which has been labeled as, for example, patriotism. You say, oh, I'm a good American. What does that really mean? There are 300 million people with 300 different views in a society that idea was founded on the freedom of an individual. So you got 300 million free individuals. You don't have patriotism anymore. Uh, you can have cults within that patriot model. You can have cults within that 300 million. I was listening to the Russians read the riot act to the Americans the other day in diplomacy, saying if you're really upset about Ukraine, how do you feel about Palestine or Africa? Or how do you feel about all these other things going on in the world? You have no feeling on that, but this is a place you want to drop your flag? Or the fact that there's another proxy war going on in Sudan, where the U.S. sent tens of thousands of mercenaries into Sudan, and the Russians sent tens of thousands of uh, mercenaries into Sudan, and they're all fighting each other for the point where the people are fleeing. Why are the people fleeing? <coughs> They're in the middle of a gunfight between two superpowers. That's why it's happening. So who feels good about that? Raise your hand if you feel good about that. Right? So we need to really think. How about the data that came out that said that Muslims in general are more Christian than Christians? Whoa, that's painful. So if you attach your flag to Christianity, the average Muslim is more of a Christian than you are. Though Christians, for some reason, hate Muslims or Muslims hate Christians or whatever, but in terms of their biblical ethos, Muslims adhere to that more than most the average Christian. They pray a certain way. They eat a certain way. They eat halal as prescribed in the biblical teachings. So we have to really reset ourselves when we start labeling and attaching ourselves to ideas and introducing this constant drip of toxins into our psyche. So just consider it, right? Um, you're with somebody, you think you can do better. No, you can't. They've actually lowered their standards for you. So just lighten up. Just lighten up. And the more we do that, the better we will be off. The, the better off we'll be, the less stressed out we'll be, and the healthier we can have in the, in the longer picture of life. You follow me, Van? Yeah, yeah, Z. Uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. Uh, we talked about some of the remedies last time as well, uh, the meditation, being able to clear the mind. The ego, as you point out, it's horrible. I mean, it just leads to escalation 
And I shouldn't say it's unconditionally bad. I mean, there's a reason we have it. Uh, it gives us a sense of I. It gives us a reason to survive, to take care of our, our body, our mind, uh, just preserve our life. But when it runs out of control, it turns into a monster, as you're saying. And it drives us to a point of insanity, you know, and, and then it's kind of like you get into a fight. You don't even know what the original point was of the fight. You forget what the cause was. What, what are you even fighting about? You just know that someone wronged you and you've got to get back at them. And you've got to prove that they're worse off than you, uh, that you're better. And then both people lose in the process. There's no winner coming out of the ego. I see this in relationships as well, where people go through divorce and instead of coming up with a settlement, some sort of sensible arrangement, they get to a point where they want to burn the other party to the ground. And it just wastes an incredible amount of financial resources. If there are children involved, those children end up with psychological problems. It's horrible. It destroys everyone, but that's the nature of the ego. It's to destroy everything, sacrifice everything for personal glory, for a sense that you are better than which isn't even a real idea. It's a false ideal. Uh, so I agree, Z, uh, just being able to check that, being able to step back from ourselves, uh, maybe that's where it starts. Uh, just that understanding of what is driving us. Why do I feel like I've got to respond? If someone says something to me or does something to me, why do I feel like it merits a response? Uh, like I've got to put them in their place. Or if something happens, it's unrelated to me. Uh, there's so much happening, as we talk about in politics around the world, which causes anxiety. Uh, it, not just anxiety, but it causes rage. It just causes these uncontrolled feelings of, oh my God, how dare they do this? Who do they think they are? How can they get away with this? And being able to step back and say, who the hell cares? What difference does it make? It, it doesn't affect me on a day-to-day -day basis. If it does affect me, maybe I can do something about it. I think... Uh, it just uh, as I wrap up this line of thinking, Z, it, maybe that's the most intelligent course of action. You know, we live in a way where we're completely accepting of everything that goes on around us. We didn't create the world. Uh, we like to talk about what we think makes sense and what doesn't. But who's to say what the universal truth is? Why things exist the way that they do? What's right? What's wrong? I mean, certainly we can have our own ideas and we can test which work and which lead to a well-functioning society. But even within that, there's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of room for different types of models, for experimentation. There's very little in life that's going to be an absolute. So why not accept what is, not get caught up in what is, not fight what is, and instead uh, just live our life. And if there is something that's important enough to us, then we can take a stand. You know, if it really matters, then change it. And then go and do something about it. Uh, if you feel like homelessness is a problem and you care about the homeless, uh, go and volunteer at a homeless shelter or go start a program to create more housing and get people off the street or to rehabilitate an area, improve economic opportunities so people don't get to that point to begin with. But if not, you know, recognize that, yeah, it's, it's sad, perhaps it's tragic, but why expend a huge amount of mental energy on something that you're not going to do anything about, that you're not in a position uh, to change. Uh, and closing the loop, I think that really gets back to your point about the ego. You know, if we can subdue that ego, that sense that we need to be in control, we need to be in charge. Maybe in, in a way, Z, the ego is this idea that everything in the world 
has to conform to us. You know, it's got to, the rest of the world has to adjust to make us comfortable, to fit our view of what reality should be, uh, to fit our view of what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And being attuned to that idea or on guard against that idea is maybe the best thing we can do. Because once you drop that, then you've got peace. You know, then you're not at war anymore. You're not in conflict. And you can make some more intelligent decisions. So uh, just some of my thoughts, see, about that ego issue you brought up. Yeah, and I'll finish and finish my words today. And just thoughts. Again, I like to say, and I hope all of us take these words as yours when you speak to people. Nobody owns the truth. We're just seeking it. And as Ben and I share these ideas and thoughts, just see if they work for you. Try a little reverence. Try a little tenderness. Uh, be grateful for what you have. Be thankful for the day. And, and when you wake up in the morning, wake up in gratitude. Follow what Khalil Gibran says. Uh, wake up in the morning and just say, hey, I get another chance. I get another chance to do this. At any moment, that life can be taken from you. It can end. Uh, drive down the highways here in L.A. And you, you often sign every day somebody loses their life just going to and from work. So if that were to be you, what would be the last thing you said to your loved one? What would have been the last night you spent with them? <clears throat> we know that it's healthy to have intimacy, closeness, and loving relationships, starting with everything is your basic work environment, having co-workers that you're, they're not stressing you out, that you hate team members, actual team members, as opposed to rivals and adversaries and people who you're trying to backbite and they're trying to cut your throat. Then it goes to your friends who you have socialized with. Uh, value the time you have with people you can actually talk to and hang out with. Those are your best therapists or people that can share with you good ideas about living and support that. Then when it comes to your, your, your intimate partner, if you have one, uh, be with them as present as you can be because it's shown that people who have healthy, intimate lives live longer, have uh, better metabolic numbers, and do well in all aspects of their life over other people. Men and women both who have happy, sensuous lives live a long time. So let that be more important than almost anything else in your life. If you, if you deprioritize love of your family and friends, you've deprioritized life and that you'll, you will succumb to that slow drip of death at a rapid pace. All right? All right, Z. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, don't torture yourself. Don't waterboard yourself. Get away from that slow drip of death. Be grateful. All good advice. See you, See you later. Talk to you soon. Love you much. Peace. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.